Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Hello, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. It is great to be with you once again. WABC Radio. Actually, WABCRadio.com. You can live stream us throughout the country, around the world, throughout the solar system, and the Milky Way. I don't know what the Milky Way is, but I'm sure we have a big following throughout the Milky Way. But you can live stream us. It's great to be with you. We will be talking about the war and related matters today. So far, what I know, or what I think I know, is that the Ruskies have not yet actually taken Kiev or Kiev. I call it Kiev, old school. But so far as I know, they have not taken it. And uh, President Zelensky, whom I might add I met uh, when I was working for President Trump. We had bilateral lunches and meetings with him. Pretty smart guy. Pretty brave guy. He's still hanging in there as far as I can tell. But the thing has not gone as smoothly for Russia uh, as perhaps the Russians thought. Even though they've come down uh, through Belarus to go right after Kiev. But we will have General Jack Keane on uh, at the 11 o'clock hour, we will have uh, Wyoming Senator Cynthia, Lum- Cynthia Lummis on uh, at the 10.30 half hour because uh, she is an ardent advocate of drill, drill, drill. And I want to talk about that in a minute because, of course, Biden has completely screwed up our domestic energy story because the left-wing radical greenies have gotten their arms around him. But in any event, I can, I guess, report at the beginning of the program that um, – Kiev is still up for grabs. I'm sure the Ruskies are going to ultimately take it over. They got the firepower. But the Ukrainians fight like hell. I mean, the Ukrainians are tough. And this baloney that Ukraine is always part of history is just part of Putin's imagination, his Hitler-esque imagination. But I want to raise a point here at, at my introduction, and that is, to some extent, this is overlooked in all the discussions about this war. But if you want to end Putin's war, the way to do it is to end the financing of Putin's war. Okay, end his war financing and you're going to slow him down and you may end it all together. This is a very important, if overlooked point. Now, look, let me make two points right here at the beginning. Point number one, high oil prices benefit Russia, okay? And by the way, they damage American consumers, motorists, truck drivers because of the gasoline at the pump. So consider this. In the year that Putin has been president, oil prices have gone up about 25 bucks. And he has reaped a tremendous profit dividend from that, okay? He's made himself about $85 billion to finance this war in Ukraine because 
Biden has thrown a wet blanket with massive regulations to restrict drilling and to restrict LNG exports. And they're still doing it. And that's what we're going to talk to Senator Lummis about from Wyoming, which is obviously an oil and gas and coal state. She knows a lot about the subject. That's why I'm bringing her on. She may not be a household name, but she's a very effective senator from the great state of Wyoming. But the point is, the point is, oil last year, and this is an average, oil prices last year went from uh, $53 a barrel to $76 a barrel. Now, from point to point, it was even a bigger swing because it was almost $100 a barrel at the end of the year. But on average, it went from $53 to $76. It's a $23 increase that translated, according to some estimates, to $84 billion in extra cash for Putin. So that's what Biden has done. How clever is Biden? All this green stuff, no federal leasing, no federal sales, federal sales on federal lands, holding back LNG exports, which obviously could help the Europeans because they're all worried. You know, they put themselves at great risk and they're vulnerable to Russian sales of oil and gas. So if we did drill, 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 instead of being at around 11 and a half million barrels a day, the peak was 13 million plus, about 13.2 million barrels a day in uh, President Trump's uh, pre-pandemic. Instead of being at 11 and a half, we could be at 13 and a half or 14 million barrels a day. And give us another year, we'll be at 15 million barrels a day. The finest crude oil and the cleanest natural gas. Natural gas would be exploding. Instead of being almost at $5, natural gas should be back around 2 dollars to $3. So drill, drill, drill. Open the oil and gas spigots. Open those spigots full throttle. Biden should be going to the fossil fuel companies and asking for their help. Instead, at his press conference on Thursday, he attacked them. Don't take advantage of higher prices. We want them to drill because the more the more supply they put on the market, the lower oil and nat gas prices are going to be. The lower gasoline prices will be. He is directly responsible for the increase in prices across the board. Oil, gas, Exports, gasoline. Gasoline, nationwide, AAA, I don't know, it's about $3.55 some odd. It's up about 40% from where it was a year ago. That's crazy. So you want to stop Vladimir Putin. One way to stop his war finance is to drill and put more oil and natural gas on the market As the supply increases, the price will come down, right? So you have too much demand chasing too few uh, supplies of energy. Well, just increase your supply. How hard is that? You don't have to be a rocket scientist. That's point number one that I want to make. Why should we be giving Putin $84 billion of extra profits to finance his war 
in Ukraine and God knows where else because he's not going to stop in Ukraine. Believe me, he's not going to stop. in the, He's taken Belarus, and the next step is going to be he's going after the Baltics. He will go after Lithuania. We'll talk more about that later in the show. But he will not stop. I mean, this guy wants to end NATO. He wants to end the European Union. He wants to bring the United States down. He has a crazy vision of Russian empire supremacy. I mean, it's a historical vision. He's a monomaniac. He's an egomaniac. He's proven himself to be a crazy guy. So he's not going to stop at the Ukraine. But I'm just saying, you want to cut off his you-know-whats. It's the family show. You want to cut off his you-know-whats, okay? Go after his war financing. All right, how much time do I have left for this segment? I got a minute. All right, I'll introduce the second part about war financing. Put sanctions on Russia's central bank, called the Central Bank of the Russian Federation. Now, we have started to put sanctions on commercial banks, but not all of them. And we've carved out energy exceptions. That's crazy. You want to have primary sanctions on commercial banks and secondary sanctions on commercial banks. That means other banks doing business with Russian banks will also be sanctioned. But mainly, stop all payments to Russia. It will prevent Russia from selling anything by sanctioning their central bank. It's more important than the SWIFT system. It directly, this is what we did with Iran. This is what President Trump did with Iran. We sanctioned the Iranian central bank and we sanctioned Iran's commercial banks. So therefore, nobody would do business with them. Payments would stop. Dollar payments. Oil is denominated in dollars. Wheat and corn and other agricultural foodstuffs are denominated in dollars. So we don't need anybody's help here. We will get the help of the European banks, trust me on that, and Japan and Australia. But my point is a separate point. Right now, today, Biden wants to stop the war financing. He could end cash payments to Russia for anything. All they do is it's energy and, and, and commodities. That's all they have. As John McCain said years ago, Russia is an old gas station masquerading as a country. It does not have the whole variety of... Uh, of, uh, you know, goods and services that it's selling. It's selling energy commodities and it's selling ag commodities. We can stop that by sanctioning their central bank, which means no dollar-denominated payments to Russia. That would end his war financing. Now, he's got $650 billion worth of reserves. That would last him about a year, max. He'll start running deficits pretty soon. If you had the two together, drill, 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 put more oil and gas on the market, the price will come down. Who gets hurt? Putin. Who has helped? American consumers with cheaper gasoline and American truckers. That's war finance. Number two, stop payments to Russia by sanctioning the Russian Central Bank and all of their commercial banks, all of them. That will end his cash flow. That will end his war financing. 
Do you follow me, folks? Do you follow me? Biden's not going there. They're not smart. They're not clever. And, of course, they're afraid to block Russian energy because they'd rather have Putin produce energy. Remember, we gave him the pipeline back, the Nord Stream. They'd rather have Putin. John Kerry says the most important thing with this war is that we don't lose Russia as a climate partner. Huh? Is that the dumbest thing you ever heard? Climate partner? Really? The guy's taking over Ukraine. The guy wants to rip into NATO. He wants to rip into the European Union. He wants to rip into the United States. And all John Kerry can think about is climate change. So I'm going to take a quick break here, but I'm just saying, you want to stop Putin, stop his war finance. How do you do that? Drill, drill, drill. More oil on the market. Gasoline prices go down. Crude oil goes down. Brent crude goes down. Stop giving him profits of $85 billion. Second, sanction the Russian Central Bank and then all the other banks. And then they will not have any cash flow. And his you-know-whats will be cut off. He will lose his financial backbone. That's the way to go about this. I'm Kudlow. We will come back in just a few minutes. I will expand on this point and explain to you some of the other nuances. And then at the half hour, Senator Cynthia Lummis is going to come on and talk. What, what Biden is doing to natural gas and oil drilling and exports is absolutely insane. And I don't want to lose track of that. I don't want because that's really part of this whole Kiev story. Anyway, I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back after. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Hi, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. So I just want to continue this discussion. If you want to stop Putin, you got to stop his war financing. The guy's making money. Last year, he made $85 billion, $84 billion, because oil prices went up. For him, that's pure profit. That's helping to finance the war. So one point, which is so obvious to everybody except Joe Biden and the White House, is to drill, drill, drill. Put more oil on the market, and you'll see oil prices come down. You'll see gasoline prices come down. Ditto for uh, LNG exports, which Europe needs. And we'll talk to Senator Lummis. I mean, the uh, Biden administration, because of their uh, crazy left-wing radical climate change greenies, are stopping uh, the production of new oil and gas, all right, which is about the stupidest thing you could do. You're in a war. One of the key themes of this war is energy. Putin has a stranglehold over Europe. Almost half their energy comes from Russia. We need to help them. We can do it. But Biden won't let us do it because he's worried about greenies. That's crazy. Now, the other point I want to make is this. A lot of people are talking about the SWIFT system. All right, my preference here, this, here, the Society for Worldwide Interbank Financial Telecommunication, that's the SWIFT system. Uh, it is very important, and I basically would have no problem taking Russia out of it. But the SWIFT system is a communications system. It replaced the old telex system. It tells you what transactions uh, are being made. But it's not a payments wire. It's not a payment system. It's an information system. 
So when I say put sanctions on the Russian Central Bank, that would stop dollar payments to Russia, which is what we want. And that would mean, by the way, stopping all dollar payments to their commercial banks as well. But see, in a a country like Russia, everything goes through the central bank. All payments go through the central bank, and then they get out to the commercial banks. Now, there may be some exceptions to that. Now, Biden has put sanctions on most of the commercial banks, but not all of them. He needs to put all of them. And they're making exceptions. They're doing carve-outs for energy-related financing. No, energy is where Putin makes his money. I want to stop the cash flow to Russia. The United States will provide energy to Europe. We can do that. We can phase it in, whatever. But the point is, you want to end war financing in order to end Putin's war. The SWIFT system is okay. Now, look, don't get me wrong. I want to, you know, freezing Putin's assets, terrific idea. Freezing the assets of his uh, oligarchs, you know, good idea. You know, good luck finding them. I mean, they're hidden all over the world. So it's a bit quixotic, but I have no problem with it. The fact is, though, for immediate impact to stop cash going to Russia. It's not about the SWIFT system, which is information about transactions. The actual transactions, the actual payments go through the Russian Central Bank and then through their commercial banks. So if you want to stop Putin, stop his war finance, drill, 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 that brings down oil prices and hurts his profits, and then sanction the central banks and all the commercial banks. That's how to do it. And then the guy will lose his cash flow, and eventually he's going to have to stop his war machine. I'm Larry Kudlow. Other side of the break, Senator Lummis from Wyoming is going to tell us about the devastation Biden is wreaking on our fossil fuel industry, which is part of war financing. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is The Larry Kudlow Show. By the way, um, WABCradio.com, you can live stream us all across the country. We are also syndicated. And we welcome to the show first-time Senator Cynthia Lummis, the great state of Wyoming, which has many wonderful things, but among them it has oil and gas and coal, if I'm not mistaken. Senator Lummis, welcome. Thanks, Larry. Uh, Absolutely. Wyoming is the largest exporting state Mm. of its um, energy. Um, Other states like Texas and North Dakota produce a little more than we do, but they also consume more of what they produce. Uh, Because of our small population, uh, Wyoming sends a lot of its energy to other states. Well, we need Wyoming. We need all those states. We need to drill, drill, drill. Senator, I'll just bring you up to speed. I've been talking in the first half hour, this business of war finance. You know, Putin finances his war uh, because he's making profits at high oil prices. (laughs) And so the Biden policy of restricting oil and gas drilling is probably the stupidest thing imaginable, particularly right now. And especially because the science is all wrong on climate change, but that's a separate segment. 
So I want to sanction the central bank and sanction all his commercial banks to cut off his cash flow, his payments cash flow. And then I want to drill, drill, drill. Now, I want to get your take on this. Um, Biden, I'm reading a headline from the New York Times. I, I don't advocate reading the New York Times, but in this particular case, Biden administration halts new drilling in legal fight over climate change. The Interior Department is pausing new federal oil and gas leases and permits after a judge blocked the government from weighing the cost of climate change. And Senator Lummis, as you know well, this is all about this social cost of carbon where we're supposed to measure pipeline impacts upstream, downstream. They're saying $51 for every ton of carbon dioxide. Um, the Trump administration had it at seven. Obama was 51. Um, we had our EPA director on last night on the, on the Fox Business Show. Uh, they actually, the Bidens wanted to be above 51, but it's all nonsense. But here's the point. They're, we're stopping all new drilling at the worst possible time. The worst possible time. And furthermore, uh, we are now, uh, having been energy independent uh, under the Trump administration, the United States is now buying oil from Russia. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, by cutting off uh, the Keystone Pipeline as one of President Biden's first acts as president, cut off our ability to produce more oil uh, than Russia is exporting. So we could have, by building the uh, Keystone Pipeline, we could have uh, supplanted um, the supply of oil. Uh, that Russia is exporting uh, in a way that gives some breathing room uh, to the European countries that are reluctant to cut Russia out of the SWIFT system uh, because they're concerned that not only do we hurt Russia, but uh, we hurt Europe. And indeed, because now we're buying oil from Russia, we even hurt ourselves as Americans. Um, these policies, the rest of which you just named, uh, failing uh, to uh, approve permitting uh, and drilling on federal uh, land, uh, is absolutely stupid. I mean, can you, you're right. That's the only word I can think. Can you imagine? So Putin has gone to war with Ukraine. Putin's really going to war with the United States. Putin wants to bring us down. He wants to break up NATO. He wants to break up the European Union. He's probably going to go after Lithuania after he takes over the Ukraine, if he takes over the Ukraine. But I'm just saying, can you imagine a stupider policy? So using this social cost of carbon, which is not proven they're wild estimates just all to price out all to price out uh, building new pipelines and drilling oil and gas uh, on federal lands. I mean, isn't that the timing couldn't be worse, Senator Lummis. That's the point I'm making. And, 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 and Russia is making huge profits as the price of oil keeps going up because, you know, we could have – we got to over 13 million barrels a day, as you well know. We could have been, you know, moving towards 14 million barrels a day and 15 million barrels a day the year after next. That's what the industry told me when I was in the White House. 
Now that's all stopped. So the price of oil is way up and Putin's war finance benefits. And the United States could, as Jim Psaki said the other day, open the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, mm. but that's only about a 30-day supply. Mm. So it buys us uh, a very small amount of time compared to where we could have been had uh, the Trump administration policies towards energy remained in place. So look at the short amount of time that it took the Biden administration uh, to uh, cripple uh, our own country with regard to energy independence and how long it takes to reverse that. Um, At the same time, uh, the uh, environmental agenda that is so extreme that's being implemented uh, by the Biden administration Um, has put us in a position of buying foreign oil, uh, not being in a position to be energy independent, uh, reducing our ability to export uh, energy to other countries uh, where we could enjoy the benefits of those high prices to benefit our own economy and where we could use our energy exports um, to uh, soften the impact of this Russia aggression uh, elsewhere in the world. And incidentally, as you know, our liquid uh, natural gas is the highest quality, much higher quality than Russian natural gas, much higher quality. Absolutely right. It it is two to three times cleaner uh, than Russian natural gas. So uh, the environmental community in the United States Uh, has helped put off limits uh, the cleanest natural gas uh, known to man uh, in quantities uh, that we can consume and export. And, of course, natural gas is by far the cleanest burning hydrocarbon. And then uh, they have enabled uh, Russia to uh, use and export its dirty uh, natural gas. So... Uh, We have countries that uh, are the big contributors to uh, greenhouse gases, Eastern Europe, India, China, uh, getting more dependent, more dependent on coal and dirty natural gas, while our cleaner Western coal, which is very low sulfur, uh, and our much cleaner uh, natural gas, uh, remains in the ground. Mm. If 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 a person really believed uh, that climate change uh, is real, that it's an existential threat, uh, that we have an extreme obligation uh, to solve these problems, we should be helping India and Eastern Europe uh, reduce their carbon footprint because. We could make much more headway moving the needle to clean up the air by helping them Mm. than the very small incremental changes uh, that can be produced in the United States because we have uh, among the cleanest air in the world. So 
Um, besides cutting off the XL pipeline, and by the by, I know you've uh, you keep bugging uh, Jennifer Granholm at the uh, Energy Department to give you an estimate on uh, the job loss from Keystone XL cancellation, but she won't. Um, as an old Washington hand, well, you are too. <laughs> Don't hold your breath, but it's a good cause. It's a very good cause. Um, cut off the XL pipeline. They've they stopped. You know. Um, They've stopped the uh, Anwar and the Willow in Alaska. I mean, so basically they've stopped drilling in Alaska. They promised it was okay. They stopped it. Um, Now, besides this social cost of carbon and the pause in federal oil and gas leases, Senator Lummis, there's a new one. Uh, I'm told, and it's a very good source, it's an impeccable source, that this Jennifer Granholm, Secretary of Energy, she is now sitting on six applications or authorizations for LNG exports. Six. Four of them come out of the Gulf, Gulf of Mexico, that would go to Europe. And then two of them owned by American companies drilling in Mexico would go to Asia. She is sitting on them. She will not authorize these projects and this comes at exactly the moment where we want to reassure our European partners, friends, I guess they're our friends, that we can provide them with LNG exports and, as you say, clean LNG exports and cheaper LNG exports. She is sitting on them, Senator Lummis. And I think somebody should raise holy hell about this. Well, thanks for letting me know. Uh, I was unaware of that. And uh, when we get back to Washington on Monday, we're going to pick up that issue and run with it. That is the easiest, quickest response uh, that the Biden administration should be making uh, in response to the Russia in, uh, uh, war in Ukraine. Yep. Um, if we want to uh, encourage um, our allies, our NATO allies, uh, to kick Russia out of SWIFT, mm-hmm. Um, and they're worried about uh, the effect on themselves uh, for supplies of energy. If um, Secretary Granholm would just quickly, uh, immediately approve all of those, uh, that would be tremendous assurance uh, to Europe uh, that we've got their back. Yeah, I'm telling you, it's a, a trust me on this, is unimpeachable. The, the source is un. My mole is the best mole imaginable, and she's just sitting on six applications for LNG exports. And as I say, four of them from the Gulf would go directly to Europe. So that's, uh, that's uh, something that can be worked on. Um, one other point I want to raise. I know you got to jump, um, Cynthia Lummis, and you're, you're, I'm so grateful that you could come on because of your knowledge of all this. Um, you were very tough, uh, correctly tough, on this um, Raskin woman uh, nominated to be the Fed's top bank supervisor. And she has a lot of hanky-panky to answer for in her fintech company, uh, which you've uh, nailed her for. And my friend Pat Toomey, who actually led the walkout on the banking committee, which is really a brave action. But she also, I mean, just quickly this point I want to make, she is a radical green who wants – if she gets into this job, uh, Sarah Bloom Raskin would attempt to use the Fed's uh, powers, even though it would be 
not supposed to be anything close to the Fed, to take, uh, you know, allocate credit away from the fossil fuel industry, allocate credit away from the fossil fuel industry. This would be another example of Biden destroying fossil fuels at exactly the moment when we need them the most. So now, Raskin, can you beat her? You know, the, and, and her position on uh, the Fed's role uh, in environmental policy uh, is the big problem mm-hmm. for her appointment. She has written uh, extensively enough uh, that she does believe that there's a role for the Federal Reserve uh, in um, climate policy uh, is the larger reason uh, that she has so little support mm-hmm. uh, within the Republican conference. So um, one of the reasons that uh, uh, Senator Toomey uh, wanted to um, prevent the committee from moving forward by not showing up at the meeting was he wanted to move forward with the other uh, candidates Mm -hmm. and have a vote on them up or down, uh, but then leave the Raskin um, nomination um, for a later date. So we could do more um, research and backgrounding and, and understanding uh, of um, her true intentions with regard to using the Fed as a uh, climate mm. regulator. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, the chairman of the committee, Sherrod Brown, um, didn't want to move forward without Raskin. And so that was what precipitated um, the Republican uh, decision not to come to the hearing. I'm hoping that Senator Brown and, and Senator Toomey can work that out and that we can move forward on the other Fed nominees. Uh, but the Fed's role is dual, of course. Uh, and by having mission creep at the Fed, uh, where uh, access to the Fed window, uh, Fed dollars can be um, bent uh, in ways that prevent right. fossil fuel from being funded or other social policies um, is, is changing the mission mm. uh, of the Federal Reserve uh, away from employment and preventing inflation. So, um, and, and if we were doing a great job uh, on those two issues, um, <laughs> That would be one thing, but actually we're not doing a good job on those issues as well. We need to keep our focus at the Fed on its dual mission and not add complications um, and and take our eye off the ball of the dual mandate of the Fed. Well, ironically, uh, if she you know used a climate change club to stop fossil fuels, she would be adding to inflation once again. Oh. Right. I mean, Absolutely that, right. that's the irony of her position. Not only is it, as you say, correct. Look, I started my career in 1973 at the New York Fed and open market operations. And I followed it ever since, including when I was director of the NEC. I'd meet with Jay Powell, uh, you know, a couple of times a month for lunch. So you're exactly right. There's no mandate on climate change. But if, if she comes and does this, she'll wreck the other mandate which is real, and that's to hold inflation down, which is public enemy number one now. 
I mean, it's just and, incredible. And we can look at what the Biden administration appointees have already done uh, on climate issues and point to that and say every decision where they had a binary choice, an either or choice, they have chosen the wrong policy. Mm. I can't think of a single instance mm. where the Biden administration, faced with a choice, has made the right choice. That is correct. So, uh, so I, history uh, uh, over the last 13 or 14 months um, informs the decision that um, these people are uh, ideologues uh, that are bent to change social policy, even if it destroys every other policy mm-hmm. uh, that keeps this country strong. Senator, I know you have to run. Uh, Senator Cynthia Lummis of the great state of Wyoming, we really appreciate your time and your insights, ma'am, and hope to talk soon. Thanks ever so much. Larry Kudlow. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. By the way, during the week, Monday through Friday, please join us. Fox Business. The name of the show is Kudlow. 4 to 5 p.m. We welcome all comers. Now, with great pleasure, I welcome General Jack Keane, retired four-star general, chairman, Institute for the Study of War, Fox News senior strategic analyst, and a Presidential Medal of Freedom recipient. General Keene, welcome back, sir. You know, before we start, I just want to thank you, sir, for your contributions to the Kudlow Show on Fox Business. It's enormously, enormously helpful. Uh, and um, I don't know what we do without you, to tell you the truth. I don't know what we would do without you. So I just want to say that. Now... Back to work. Uh, from what I gather, uh, Russia has not yet taken over Kiev. You've been talking about how this is a fight that's going to be much tougher than the Russians thought. It looks like your uh, analysis is quite correct. Zelensky is still hanging in there. So what's going on in the military front? What can you tell us? Well, <clears throat> well first of all, we said from the outset that Putin and his uh, military planners uh, selected the the most complicated campaign plan um, that they of all the options that were available, and that is to conduct four independent uh, ground and and sea approaches into Ukraine. All of them requiring their own individual logistical infrastructure, and also requiring close air support from their um, Air, from the air power and air forces, uh, the naval forces as well, who provide cruise missiles, in support of each one of those axes. And only one of those axes has truly met the expectations, and that's the one from the south that came out of Crimea. So the axes going into uh, Kiev has had uh, major problems being slowed down, and now it's bogged down in the city. Not surprising, given the resistance. Uh, Kharkiv, uh, another city, is the same uh, issue. And the Donbass, there hasn't been much advancement uh, whatsoever. I'll give them some credit. That could be uh, a tactic on their part to keep fixed uh, the Ukraine military forces in that area so they cannot provide assistance to uh, 
to the capital city. Mm. But the the Russians have clearly they're, they're planning and their execution um, is suspect here, and it's not just the Ukrainian resistance. It's their it's their own challenges. Listen, Larry, they've never done anything on a scale like this uh, since World War II. Mm. Um, and this is a very complicated option that they've selected. I mean, the United States military would be challenged by this option on four four axes of, of advance uh, requiring the kind of support that's necessary. We could do it, uh, but we would also put our minds on it. Is that the best course of action? Is, it, is there too much risk associated with it? The other thing that is stunning here, Larry, they don't have uh, complete airspace control. Huh. After three days, four nights, three days, the Ukrainian Air Force is still flying, and they have air defenses that are still operating uh, against Russian air power. That is absolutely stunning. The other one is, much to my surprise, I mean, they have not shut down uh, the Ukrainian Internet. Uh, they have not shut down their telecommunication systems. They haven't shut down their power grids. The water is operating. I, I, I'm assuming they've tried, or when, it, when it's possible that given Putin's delusion here you know that somehow he can he can influence the ukrainians he is using the internet to talk to the ukrainian military and the ukrainian people and in so many words he's he is telling them you know to overthrow their government to move away from Zelensky, and that just even the fact that he's attempting uh, an act like that tells me that there's some that he's somewhat delusional he doesn't understand that the Ukrainian people for the last eight years, given his provocation and incursion in 2014 in the Crimea and eastern Ukraine, that the people, they their resolve has stiffened and become profoundly anti-Russian and oriented towards integration to the West. And the fact that he thinks that somehow he could convince them of the latter at this late date after he's killing them is just very delusional on his part. And that may be one of the reasons why he's letting the internet operate because he wants to influence the action on the ground uh, based on in his his own individual persona. What, this is fundamentally flawed on his part. The Ukrainians, their story is getting out, Larry, and obviously mm-hmm. our in, the international broadcasters and, and particularly Fox is doing a superb job uh, it, uh, as well as... Uh, international radio commentators in telling the Ukrainian story. Mm. It, it's really extraordinary what is, uh, what is happening here. What, um, I mean, I know you said yesterday on this show that eventually they'll prevail, but I mean, maybe this is just one gigantic mistake and maybe he's just Putin's miscalculated. I mean, how long you reckon the Ukrainians can hold out? It, it, it's hard. I'd just be speculating, uh, Listen, at the end of the day, there's, Putin has put some restraints on his military uh, for two reasons. One, uh, their history of using air power is unbelievably brutal. They did it in Chechnya where they went in and literally killed tens of thousands of, of civilians just to topple the civilians that they believe were supporting the Chechen resistance. When they went into Syria, into the major cities, they took entire neighborhoods down with carpet bombing, mm. and they actually used deep penetration bombs to blow up hospitals that were under the ground, which is an international crime. Mm. Unbelievably brutal. They are not doing that here because they they don't want undue reputational harm, which they're already suffering, certainly, 
but they didn't want to become a pariah by toppling these cities, which they certainly have the capability to do, which would produce significant civil, civilian casualties. The other thing is their cautiousness also could be explained in the use of their own troops that I think Putin is concerned about casualties to his forces and how that's going to register with his uh, domestic population. He had that concern back in 2014, so much so that he was he was con- concealing the movement of of uh, Russian soldiers' bodies and everything, only being done at night, uh, moving them home and uh, arriving them at night and keeping it quite secret in terms of what the numbers were, lying about what, what, what the numbers were. So that may be another factor that's operating uh, here that provides some color as to what's taking place. But certainly the big story uh, is is obviously the Ukrainian resistance. You know, the... As you say, the whole world is watching. I was interested, General Keene, you know, even China. China is uh, apparently, reportedly, putting the clamps on loans to Russia. That's a news story. It's been confirmed. Uh, China's a state-run economy by the Communist Party. Uh, They are... uh, restraining the spigots of credit to Russia. They are not fully behind this, and they themselves— That's a big story. uh, Yeah, I know. It's just a very surprising story coming out. Well, they wanted wanted diplomacy, not invasion. Um, They—what did they do? They abstained in the Security Council. But I'm just saying the story I picked up last evening, um, we'll see where that— uh, we'll see where that plays out. You know, my thought, look, um, the longer this goes, of course, uh, the better, I think, for Ukraine and and, yeah. and for freedom in general. But, you know, I want to starve Russia of cash. And now Biden's doing everything wrong by shutting down fossil fuels. I just had Senator Cynthia Lummis of Wyoming on. She knows a whole lot about that. Uh, the Energy Department is, is actually sitting on applications uh, for LNG exports. It's exactly the moment we need to pick up spare capacity to help the Europeans out. And they've stopped all all federal uh, uh, drilling has now been frozen. So that's exactly wrong. But, uh, Putin made a lot of money on the hike in oil prices, which has come from our restraints and restrictions on fossil fuels. But the other thing is, General Keene, my advocacy is we should the the swift system is is interesting but that's an information system we need to sanction the russian central bank along with sanctioning the commercial banks now biden has sanctioned many but not all of the commercial banks he should do it all and we should sanction the central bank that would stop dollar payments so we'd hurt his cash flow i want to stop his war financing and but you're uh, saying you're saying he has not he has not sanctioned the central bank? No, not yet. And it's, oh, there's this debate about the so-called SWIFT system, but the SWIFT system is an information system. It replaced the old telex system. It tells you uh, information about transactions. It is not a payment system. The payments right. have to go through the Russian central bank. If we, This is what we did, Mnuchin and I and O'Brien and, and, and Pompeo and others. Uh, we cut off the Iranian cash flow by sanctioning their central bank. And it worked. And it worked fast. Yeah. And it would work the same way with Russia. Because so, I mean, obviously, the guys in the Treasury and the State Department, the, 
the guys that pull the switch on all of that, they're still there. They know how to do this. That's stuff. right. Exactly right. The career people know how to do it. They're just waiting for uh, political direction. So we'll see on that front. So far, nothing. I'm absolutely stunned by what you just said. I, I assumed when he said he was going after Russia's big banks, words to that effect, this is the president speaking, I thought it was the central bank for sure. No, sir. You ex- you took me through and educated me on this once before on television yep. um, uh, in terms of the significance of the central bank and, and how the SWIFT system in of itself, while it's it, it's it's crucial and it's important. It's not as vital as the central bank. That's system. right. It's not a payments wire. It's not a payments yeah, wire. Yeah. And I got to tell you, uh, day before you, I had a discussion with my friend Steve Mnuchin, who was Treasury Secretary when we uh, sanctioned the Iranian uh, central bank. I just wanted to check. I said, "Am I right? I'm not seeing it in the news." And he said, "No, they haven't done that yet, and they need to do that. If you want something that is swift and severe." To use President Biden's quote, that's what you have to do. You go for the yeah. central bank, uh, and they haven't done it yet. So I'm trying to cut off his war financing, sir. You know, that's to me, yeah. besides the no. military side. Uh, well, if, 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 when when you do something like that, I mean, uh, an army runs on guns for sure, but it also runs on butter. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it needs logistical support, which is one of the operational problems they're having right now. And and you you shut down the logistical support for an army to include the resupply of its ammunition, it it stops. Yep. It stops. It's just that. That's how you stop it. So um, let me switch gears slightly. Um, we had on uh, the show last night after you, we had um, Professor Walter Russell Mead. Very, very smart guy. He's an old friend of mine. He wrote an op-ed piece in the journal. um, And I'll just quote his thesis. Putin aims to topple the U.S. from its global position, break the post-Cold War world order, cripple the European Union, and defeat NATO. Now, that's from Professor Walter Russell Mead. Uh, As you know, um, Putin issued a warning to Finland and Sweden uh, about going into NATO. Uh, he said there'll be consequences if they go into NATO. And as we discussed briefly last night on Fox Business, um, some people are talking about if they do take uh, Ukraine, they will go after Lithuania. Now, you know, this may be the work of a madman, but I just wanted to get your thinking on all of this because this is very serious business. No, I, I read most of uh, what Walter Mead has to say, and, and I think he's got uh, you know great insight. I, I don't disagree with his, his basic premise at all. I mean, uh, Putin has been talking about this for some time, ever since he went to the Munich conference in 2007. Mm. And, and Munich Security Conference, which is, for our audience, is benefit. It's an annual affair. Uh, where the leaders in Europe come together and the United States to discuss essentially foreign policy and national security. And Putin came to that. Uh, and this is, he's seven years in power when he does it. And he expresses his frustration with NATO expansion and, and, the, and the fact that they're seeking uh, to dominate and contain uh, Russia. And, and it, it is ex- his comments are explosive and, and, and they just sort of were discarded, uh, you know, because 
Um, <clears throat> Russia didn't have all that influence. Their military was just rebuilding. Um, Putin was a strong man with a thuggish personality, uh, but maybe not to be taken too seriously. And then in 2008, he goes into Georgia mm-hmm. uh, after the invitation was extended for Georgia and Ukraine to become a part of the uh, become a part of NATO. So I think this is his vision, uh, and I and I think he's expanded on it quite a bit in that our dissertation you know, he provided to, on international television uh, this this week. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think he was quite clear, you know, about what his frustration is. And I, uh, Belarus was a step in the right direction and didn't cause him a lot of problems. The people were pushing back on a dictator who had his disagreements with Putin. But those disagreements were put inside because Putin helped him to stay in power. And, and as a result of that, that, I think, buoyed him because now he has Belarus. And you know where that's located, right next to Poland, right next to Lithuania and Latvia. Uh, and obviously north of uh, Ukraine. And that was a huge strategic victory for him to get Belarus completely in, the, in his orbit. And now Ukraine, this is all part of his vision. And I do think he's going to challenge NATO's existence. Mm. And it would likely be over the Baltics. And, and the next time our viewers are looking at a map, just look and see where Lithuania is, and you'll see how Belarus occupies the biggest part of that border, and now Russian troops will stay in Belarus. I guarantee you they will stay there permanently, mm. and they'll be bucked up against the the Polish border and the Lithuanian border. And then to the south of Lithuania, where it touches the Baltic Sea, there's a piece of Russia that is there, and it's referred to as Kaliningrad. And Putin has put in that piece of terrain, some of the most sophisticated defensive and offensive missiles that they own, which, and the purpose of which is to deny NATO any air power or sea access that would interfere with ground forces taking control of Lithuania or one of the other Baltic nations. So yes, most of us, when we look at it strategically, the Baltic small countries easy to take control of, Russian minorities present there, that would be the justification Mm. because they're they're being uh, intimidated, harassed, genocide or whatever, all the false narratives we heard associated with Ukraine, small militaries and not much NATO presence. Mm. We have got to recognize what Walter Meade is saying. Mm. The, The United States government's got to internalize this, wake up and get serious that Putin, while he may be delusional and he may be insulated to a fault and and not seeing the world in terms of its its reality, we have to deal with what his motivations are and, 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 and wake up and get serious about it. All right, we'll leave it there. General Jack Keane, thank you, sir, for everything. I will see you Monday, undoubtedly. Folks, we take a quick break. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Rudy Giuliani here for Monetary Gold. America is now $30 trillion in debt. Think about that, $30 trillion. Your great, great, great grandchildren can never pay that back. 
Democrats are looking for revenue to help finance their multi-trillion dollar climate and social welfare programs. Fox Business reported that the IRA is under attack. CNBC says that the government already owns a piece of your traditional 401k or IRA. Retirement funds are in the crosshairs by Dems who want access to the estimated $21 trillion in retirement accounts. There's one way to protect your money. Diversify into gold. Call Monetary Gold at 1-888-204-2141 and get their free protection guide. They're giving up to $5,000 of free gold and silver to the first 12 qualified callers. Monetary Gold is A-plus rated by the Better Business Bureau, a top five gold company on consumer affairs and has been in business for 20 years. Call 1-888-204-2141 or visit monetarygold.com. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. Great pleasure to be with you. By the way, you can live stream us. I just learned this today, the things you learn in life. You can live stream us at LarryKudlowShow.com. LarryKudlowShow.com. So that means you can hear us throughout the country and around the world and well into the solar system. And perhaps even the Milky Way. I don't know what the Milky Way is, but LarryKudlowShow.com. Very exciting. And please, during the week, Fox Business, 4 to 5 p.m. Every day, the show's called Kudlow. Now, this is going to be great fun. We welcome back an old friend, Arthur Brooks. Arthur Brooks has a new book. It's called From Strength to Strength, Finding Success, Happiness, and Deep Purpose in the Second Half of Life. Uh, Arthur is teaching school at the Harvard uh, Kennedy School these days. He used to be the president of the American Enterprise Institute. He's an old friend. Arthur, it's um, it's a pleasure to have you back. Larry, what a delight. The great Larry Kudlow. <laughs> I've been admiring you, for unfortunately, from afar for the last few months because you were so, so busy. Now I get to be back on your show. What a delight. How are you? Yeah, no, it's my pleasure, too. You know, I was just thinking about this. Um, what I remember when I last left you, which I don't know how many years ago, but, you know, I used to quote you all the time everywhere. People who work are happier. People on welfare are not. And faith, spiritual faith or religious faith is a key element in life. And I remember the interview we did together uh, in front of the National Review that time, uh, probably the greatest interview NR has ever seen. I don't know, three, <laughs> four, five hundred people. But you know, your your thesis, and you had done all the statistical work. Uh, people who work are just happier, and people on welfare are not happy. And of course, the importance of God in our lives. Now, tell us about the new book, and um, is that an extension of your earlier work, or are we breaking new ground, or what? Well, I'm, believe it or not, Larry, what I'm doing is I teach happiness at Harvard. I'm the happiness professor at the Harvard Business School, and I'm trained. I'm a, you know, a PhD social scientist, and that's my background is in the science of happiness. Uh, some years ago, I noticed that almost all of the science of happiness is mostly designed for younger people, and that's great. This is what I teach. I teach 27- and 28-year-old MBA students who want to grow up and be Larry Kudlow. Let's not kid ourselves. <laughs> but what we don't tell people about is actually the secret to getting happier as we age. Most people think that it's just going to – you leave it up to chance. You know, you live right. You, you, you hope for the best. You try to get as successful as you can, and then you hope your later years are happier. But the truth is 
I have learned over a seven-year research project that was basically, I did it for myself, I'm not going to kid you, was that you can do seven things. And if you do these seven things, you can literally be happier at 75 than you were at 25. And the earlier you start, the happier you're going to get. This is a guidebook. This is a 401k plan for Mm -hmm. happiness Mm -hmm. for the rest of us. Exactly right. So give us a sample of these seven things. Well, to begin with, the most important thing to keep in mind is our strengths change. The book is called From Strength to Strength because you truly can go from success to success. But the biggest mistake to make is trying to cling to your past successes. Mm. This is one of the things that real strivers do. I mean, who the only people who listen to the Larry Kudlow show want to be successful because they're strivers and doing a lot with their life. The key thing to keep in mind is that early on you have this thing called fluid intelligence that makes you work hard and focus and solve problems and do better than others. Later on in life, you have something called crystallized intelligence or your wisdom, which you can use to teach others, to form teams, to take other people's ideas and combine them in new and creative ways. And mm. I, give the, I give all of the instructions in this book about how to get from one curve to the other so that people can actually get more success and happiness later in life, even than they had early in life. Well, I think, I don't know, I may be in that camp. I mean, really, it's you know, kind I, of like, you know, the, the White House years were very helpful. They broadened, expanded my, you know, knowledge. And uh, I come out and I've gone back on TV and radio. And it, I think it's made me um, smarter, better, you know, uh, more fluent on more things. And maybe even, Arthur, better able to communicate these things. I think that's where I am. I think it's true. You know, I've been always an observer of your great career. And early on, you were this brilliant guy breaking new ground, doing things that nobody else has done. You're a teacher now, Larry. You're Mm. a teacher. You're Mm. a teacher on the radio. Mm. By the way, you were also a teacher in the White House. Every time you showed up on TV, your objective was not to to browbeat everybody and win every argument. Mm. It was to inform people about what was going on. You were an economics professor on TV, working for the White House. That's what you are. You're the crystallized guy. You're the perfect example of this. Mm. Now, that's one skill. There's six others that if we want to get happier as we get older, that's not the only thing we have to adopt. We have to do a bunch of other things with our relationships, with our spiritual path, by lifting other people up. And I go through all of these things in detail in the book. Talk about a wee bit, uh, Arthur, about the spiritual path, please. Absolutely. You know, one of the things that we find is that people tend to become more interested in their spiritual life as they get older. And there are a bunch of different reasons for that. But the biggest is that we start realizing, usually after about the age of 40, that the obsession that we have with our day-to-day humdrum existence, my job, my car, my friends, my commute, it's so boring. Mm. I mean, we're obsessed with a thing that's not that interesting. We want something bigger. We want the majesty of existence. So people start reading more philosophy or they start praying more or getting involved in the religion of their childhood. They come back to really, some people never leave, of course, but some people start coming back to it. You got to do this. Larry, the interesting thing is that what all happy people have in common is that they practice four big habits over the course of their life. This is not just the thing to get happier as you get older, but all of us can. And that is their faith, their family life, their friendships and earning their success with their work. Oh, I love that. What you talked about in the introduction to that. This is critically important. Faith, family, friends, and work. How you manifest those things and get better at it as you get older is really the subject of from strength to strength. I love that. Faith, family, friends, and work. You're earning success. That was your big theme years back. 
It's yeah. very important. Well, I think I fit into that. I mean, look, um, I go to church. I'm still churchgoer, and I go to my uh, AA 12-step meetings whenever I can. It's a little harder uh, with the pandemic stuff, but, you know, you, you do it when you can. And I got to tell you, look, I'm uh, 74, Arthur Brooks. I'm 74 years old. I'll be 75 this summer. And um, I, you know, God has been great to me. I mean, that's, you know, he, I believe God has done for me what I could never do for myself. And I still work very, very hard because I enjoy it. I love my wife. We're, I guess we're coming up to 37 years in our marriage. And I've been sober 20, well, I think I'm coming up to 27 years. But I feel happy. I am happy camper, Arthur. You know, I mean, here I am Saturday morning. Uh, it's a long week on TV doing my show and some other uh, of, of the segments for the other shows. But I'm a happy camper. I mean, I got to tell you, I'm a happy camper. Not always That's sure really why, great. but I am. <laughs> well, you've got a lot of your hygiene for happiness on point, Larry. Mm. And this is a critical thing. One of the big mistakes that people make, however, is they say, if I could only be as successful as possible, if I could only have all of the worldly successes of money, power, pleasure, fame, then I'd be happy, but that's actually not no, true. No, right. Well, it's, you know, right. this is, I mean, you're a well-known guy and you've done well financially in your life, but that's actually not the reason that Larry Kudlow's happy. No. The key thing to keep in mind is you need to make sure you're not addicted to the successes of the world, but that you're establishing your root system, that you're walking your spiritual path, that you're, you're facing your fears, you're jumping onto your new success curve. And, you know, this book, basically what this book is, and, and, and by the way, Larry, I wrote it for me over mm-hmm. a seven-year period. Mm-hmm. I had it in notebooks in my office, and my wife said, you got to publish this. And I said, I don't know. You think people are going to like this? <laughs> it's the number one New York Times bestseller right now. Oh, for heaven's sake. And sense. the reason, it turns out, it turns out, well, and again, this is another secret to happiness. Your wife is always right. <laughs> I'm going to get the book and read it, I promise. You know, it's funny, when we put the show together, uh, Susan Varga, who r- really runs everything in my life. But she said, when you're talking about the war, she said, we need some happiness on this show. <laughs> and so here you are. Arthur yeah, Brooks, absolutely. It, it's a pleasure. <laughs> we'll do this again soon. The name of the book, folks, is From Strength to Strength, Finding Success, Happiness, and Deep Purpose in the Second Half of Your Life by Arthur Brooks. Thank you, Arthur. Great stuff. Folks, I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. We're going to take a quick break. And then we're going to go to the happiness of the oil market. So please stick around. Larry Kudlow. From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. And we welcome to the show Phil Flynn, the Price Futures Group. He's senior account executive and author of the Energy Report. You'll see Mr. Flynn on Fox Business all the time. Phil, welcome to the show. Uh, Larry, be, thanks for having me. Oh, no, of course, it wouldn't be any fun talking about Russia and uh, the Ukraine and Joe Biden's restrictions on fossil fuel without getting an oil report. Actually, it's, it's um, so let me just see, uh, West Texas at 92 bucks, Brent at 98, mm-hmm. uh, natural gas, 448. Uh, I don't know where... Triple A gasoline was about three fifty, I think. Uh, That's right, three fifty five, something like that. Something like that, yeah. And and with a bullet, I think it's going to keep going. Yeah. So what's your yeah? T- so talk to us about the 
you know, oil and gasoline implications of what we're seeing. I mean, it's interesting. We had General Keene was just on. You know, the Russians are having a hard time uh, taking over Kiev. I mean, this is not going to be easy. It's going to be much harder than they thought. Uh, I'm I'm interested just as an observer that the oil market has not yet exploded. Now, you know, 92 is high enough. Uh, and I was thinking if we – if we were pumping 13, 14 million barrels a day, it would be lower than that. But I'll leave that analysis up to you. Where are things going, Phil Flynn? I think you're absolutely right, Larry. And it's just amazing the 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 courage um, and the uh, the strength of the Ukraine people. I mean, it's just absolutely uh, an inspiration to everybody, right, to fight for liberty and freedom and stand up. And, um, you know, their prayers are definitely with us. Uh, but this is one of the first wars, I think, that has been driven. No, it isn't the first war. We've had other wars driven by bad energy policy. And, mm. and this is a shame. We put ourselves into this position. Uh, well, Europe did as well by becoming more dependent on Russia for supply. Um, you know, the Green New Deal, get off energy, you know, and, you know, become more dependent on wind and solar. Uh, and Vladimir Putin saw that. And, you know, he saw the pullback in U.S. oil and gas production as a retreat from the United States, which I believe emboldened him to become more aggressive um, and really march on Ukraine, because let's face it, he's the, the pusher for, for energy. He controls energy in Europe. And if you control energy in Europe, you have a lot of power. You know, that is a really big point. Go back. There's history here. Um Putin went in and took Georgia in 2008, where oil prices skyrocketed. I mean, I think the high was about 150 bucks, but they had been rising all that year. You know, as we went into the financial meltdown, he took Georgia. Okay, mm-hmm. then um, for a whole bunch of years, uh, you didn't really hear from him. Um, Oil prices started to come back down, but then he came back uh, and went into Belarus when oil prices jumped again. Um, I was about 2014. I don't, oh, no, he took Crimea in 2014, and I think oil was Correct. close to $100 a barrel, Phil. Mm-hmm. Then we didn't, oil comes back down. The frackers, you know, the fracking revolution starts to get really hot. Um, oil comes way down into the, I think at one point, $25 or so. Um, then he went back, you know, we didn't really hear from the guy. We didn't hear from him during the Trump years as the fracking continued oil was well, 50, 60 bucks, 70 bucks, but you know, nothing too heavy. And now here we are at a hundred bucks and the guy's back. You know, it, you're it, absolutely right. And it's, it kind of, it's kind of goes, if you factor out, I, you know, I know the pandemic and so forth. But more or less, Phil Flynn, I see it. Oil went from $50 to $100 or close to it in round numbers. And he's back. So, you know, he's making money. He's profiting off of our stupidity. As The Green New Deal it was a big setback. That's a really important point, really important point. It really is. And I mean, if you look at energy as parts of World War, I mean, listen, one of the reasons why Japan attacked, you know, Pearl Harbor was because, you know, we cut off their oil supply. And now, you know, Germany, 
you know, has sold their soul to Vladimir Putin with this Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was warned by, by you and, and the, the Trump administration, don't do it. You yeah. know, this is a big mistake. Uh, but, but, but it appears that they don't understand the importance of reliable energy, um, and, and Putin does. He realizes his strongest weapon that he has is oil and gas – and he's used it magnificently uh, as a deterrent to being attacked. And, and now we have to, you know, even as he is attacks a, a sovereign nation, we have to keep sending him money. Uh, otherwise, he can turn off the lights on off in Europe. It's just nuts. Yeah, it is nuts. That's, you know, my view is drill, drill, drill. That'll get the price down. And, and we need to sanction their central bank. Stop the payment system. Not the SWIFT system, but the central bank. Anyway, Phil Flynn, uh, it's hard for either of us to figure out the military story, uh, but what is your uh, near-term outlook for oil and and hence gasoline? Well, you know, there's two major things, and and I'm afraid uh, that one of them could be another major policy mistake by the Biden administration in Europe. I, I think this price spike that we're seeing in Europe that's causing prices to go through the roof because of their dependence on Russia is going to force them into a bad deal with Iran, right? Oh. And if they get forced into this deal, they're going to give a, another terrorist nation, um, you know, the president of Iran is a, a noted terrorist, mm-hmm. uh, you know, more money and support. Now, that may bring down prices temporarily, but I don't think that's a great move because that's going to cause big problems down the road. Right now, we have a target on WTI of about $100 a barrel average. Mm-hmm. Uh, Brent, uh, about 110 mm-hmm. um, And we're expecting what could be the biggest relief from, from the global strategic petroleum reserves. It'll cool off prices a little bit, but it won't solve bad energy policy. Mm-hmm. What would that? Yeah. What do we have in there? Uh, Six hundred fifty million barrels. What's what's in there? Well, they've been giving it away lately. I'll tell you, they've been drawing it down. In fact, the supplies in the strategic reserve, um, I believe, are at the lowest level since two thousand eight. Hmm. And for years, we have been using the strategic reserve not for its original purpose, uh, but basically for uh, political. Piggy bank, you know. Right. I think under the Obama administration, they cut a deal, you know, for funding uh, to for green energy projects, um, and we have drawn down, I think, to the lowest level since 2008. I don't have the exact number in front of me, but mm. it's 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 continues to be released. Uh, we released three million barrels last week uh, mm. uh, from the reserve, and we're going to continue to do so. You're supposed to buy low and sell high. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I think that, I, I, that's what I, Trump. That's how he looked at Spro. He thought it was his own little oil portfolio. And did. when oil he prices crashed, he said he told all he said um, and, and NEC handled that traffic. So he would say to me, come on, get get energy department to start buying. <laughs> this oil has dropped down and the frackers were fracking like crazy. Absolutely. He was a great trader. I'm telling you, buy the low, he'd be selling the high. You know, well, you know, the other thing I think that that Trump did fantastic is he had a good relationship with Saudi Arabia, even though, you know, they're not the greatest guys to deal with. But but listen, they have their uh, finger on the spigot. And Mm. when Trump tweeted, you know, I used to say, you know, Donald Trump can't tweet more oil out of the ground. 
I was wrong. He did. You know, <laughs> he tweeted to Saudi Arabia, you better, you better raise production or you're going to have problems. And sure enough, they've listened to them. They don't listen to President Biden. You know, they are ignoring President Biden. Right. Part of it is because he won't acknowledge Crown Prince Ben Salman. I don't like him. You don't like him. Right. But if you want OPEC to work with OPEC, you're going to have to call him. Yeah, I mean, we had what I would call correct and professional relations with them. Uh, but exactly. no, they're they're not our people. And um, and it's always a problem. Let me go back to your Iranian point. You, you figure uh, Europe and the U.S. Uh, will try to make a deal with Iran and let and that will permit them to. So we would be taking the sanctions off is what you're saying, and they can print more oil and get paid for it. Exactly. Yeah. I think that, yeah. you know, they're, they're, we've been hearing, you know, tweets this week that, you know, we're on the verge of a deal. It's, you know, we're, we're at the finish line. Mm. Um, expectations are that they could immediately add anywhere from 700,000 barrels to a million barrels of oil a day. Um, they have a lot of oil in storage that they could send to South Korea. South Korea is mm. already, you know, sending, getting their checks ready to be sent. Oh, um, but I'm afraid that this is just a desperation move and that they're going to give up too much uh, to this uh, oh, for sure. state. That's oh, a problem. for sure. Um, make a, ter- a bad deal it's under a the pressure idea. of what's happening in Ukraine. You see, we, could, we have – when Trump put sanctions – I got to get out, but Phil Flynn went yeah. – I was there in national security when Trump put the sanctions on Iran. We pulled out of the deal. We argued that the world was awash in oil because the frackers were fracking and we encouraged that. And we didn't give a damn about Iranian oil. They're a bunch of terrorists ruining the Middle East and Israel. But you're so right. That's a high risk. Anyway, Phil Flynn, thank you ever so much. I hope you come back on. Folks, we're going to take a break. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're going to do some stock market and economic work on the other side. Please stick around right here. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Great to be with you, as always. We're going to do a little stock market work and some economic work. We've got heavy hitters today. By the way, it was a weird, wild week. On again, off again. Let's see, Thursday, the market was down 800 points. And then uh, President Biden announced his uh, so-called swift and severe sanctions, which were neither swift nor severe. So the market came all the way back. I think it finished up 100. I'm using the Dow. And then... uh, Yesterday, up 800 points, 835 points. So that's pretty cool. Stocks for the long run is what I think about days like that. Stocks for the long run. You can't outguess the stock market. There is no way. Anyway, we got two geniuses here. The great Joe Lavornia, who was former chief economist at the White House National Economic Council, and just for the heck of it now, he's working as chief economist at Natixis Bank because he's, you know, it's got to do something until he goes back into power. And Ken Paul Carey, managing director at Case Capital Advisors and chief market strategist at Slate Stone Wealth. Gentlemen, welcome back. Kenny Paul Carey, I've got to start with you. Wild and woolly. I mean, the question is, what does it mean? Where is it going? But... You know, in terms of our listeners, 
how how they're not professionals like you. How do they play this? Right? This is you know how do you, what the hell do you do? you're sitting around? I mean, it's think of it this way: you're sitting around uh, our show. Let me go back to the Fox Business Show, Cudlow. So on Thursday, so the market's down eight hundred points. Uh, president comes on and gives his shtick on sanctions or the lack thereof. And we're going on the air. <laughs> the market's coming all the way back, all the way back, and winds up in the green. And then yesterday, of course, it exploded. So what is that? Right. What, how does a person deal with that? So, listen, Larry, thanks for having me on the show again. But the, the, the average person needs to really eliminate the noise, right? And I understand how frightful it can get those couple of days that we saw the market just completely fall out of bed when, when, uh, when Putin made the first move. But uh, in the long term, what we found out is that geopolitical issues like this make create all kinds of short term chaos and noise and distress and all that. But then the markets settle in. And then you saw, you know, first of all, we were way oversold. So we were due for that snapback rally anyway. But then what happens is the markets will adjust to what the geopolitical situation is. And so the worst thing you can do is make an emotional decision to sell stock exactly when you think the world is falling apart, because you're usually wrong. It's always at the bottom. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And then we saw that. Now, look, that doesn't mean there's not going to be volatility ahead. I'm sure there is going to be because this situation is still unfolding as we speak. So I would expect and I would suggest to people that you just got to be prepared, right? If you want to stay in the market and you should, um, then you just need to be prepared. But you said it right at the top of the line. You know, the the stocks for the long term is where you should be focusing. Big names like I'm in, you know, this year I'm really, really talking up the consumer staples, the financials, the energy, the big name Americana, dividend payers, mega cap names are, are places where you're going to find certainly safety um, and and growth as well. Yeah, no, I think that's really good advice. Um, I really think that's good advice. The best way to prepare for these things is, you know, have a bottle of Excedrin near you. Right. right? I mean, what else are you going to do? I mean, it's just, right. you're right. You can't panic about these things. And I do think stocks for the long run. Joe Livornia, uh, on the interest rate side, there wasn't near as much movement. I mean, I'm looking, Joe, the 10-year finishes of 196. So, you know, you're still hovering around 2%. Um, the two years, 157. The five years, 187. You know, it's interesting, Joe, one point here the five-year tips break evens. The inflation indicator jumped up seventeen basis points to three point one one three eleven. What do you make of that, Mr. Labornia? Larry, I make it uh, as a function of what's happened with oil. Having you know, it was only around sixty dollars a barrel in Q4, and is up now around a hundred. So it's a it's an oil price story. If you look at the at the five-year forward it swaps. Can we, right, fellas, that's could, been very well contained. Can we and figure the, out that somebody's pushing papers or something? Yeah, that's that's not me. Whatever it is, uh, maybe Kenny can calm down the noise. Okay, go ahead, Joe. So, 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 Larry, the uh, basically, if you look at market expectations, other than the five-year break-even, but the five-year, five-year forward, or the ten-year rate, or the long-term. Uh, Michigan, even the longer-term New York. I mean, inflation expectations are very well contained. It's very interesting to me that we cannot sustainably break 2% on the 10-year, despite having priced essentially nine Fed rate hikes between now and next year 
elevated inflation. And what the market's telling me, Larry, is the slope of the curve, where the curve is pricing a year or two from now, is you have a very fragile economy, uh, trend productivity growth because of the regulatory backdrop, the potential for tax hikes has depressed the economy's potential. The real equilibrium interest rate is very low, which means that in real terms, I don't see the funds rate ever getting above zero, at least given the current policy mix. And that's what the bond market is suggesting to me. If rates were to rise higher, that would be unambiguously negative for stocks, the bulk of which have rallied from March of 2020 on earnings expansion. But if the U.S. economy isn't as strong as people think it is, and I don't believe it's very strong at all because of the current policy mix and what's happening, then we're going to see rates go lower from here. That might buttress stocks, but my fear, Larry, is we haven't seen the lows yet in equities. I should almost think we're in a bear market. Wait, can I jump in there one second and ask two questions? A, I agree with Joe in the sense that I think there's more downside. But, Joe, are you suggesting that after all this that the Fed is not going to hike three, four, five, six times? Is that what you're suggesting? Yeah, oh, I'm not suggesting it, Kenny. I'm of the view the Fed will be lucky if they can get off more than two or three hikes. They waited right. way too long to raise rates. Well, We've got financial okay, instability. And, right. um, and we're seeing what people aren't talking about and they should be talking about is what's happening in the credit markets. High yield and high grade credit are trading terribly. And that is a very right. good leading indicator of what's going to happen with equities. So Bullard, Daly, and Loretta Messer, as, as aggressive as they are talking, you think is just, is just noise? Yes, it's noise. They're reading from the old hymn book. Actually, Mary Daly's been pretty reasonable. Uh, I think right. John Williams at New York has as well. They want to be data dependent, see how the data evolve. Jim Bullard, right. I think, is angling for a Fed chair at some point by being overly hawkish. Uh, just right, my opinion. Right. But, yes, I, I think no, right. it's, it's noise. I actually wanted him to be Fed chair. I really – I think Bullard make a great Fed. You know, his former advisor is uh, is Waller, who I put on the board. Uh, but, Joe, you're, you're – so let me – you're not worried about inflation. Is that the deal, Joe Lavorne? No, I'm, I'm worried about it, Larry. I'm definitely worried about it. It's certainly a problem. Our friend Kevin Hassett had a great call on inflation when virtually everybody had it wrong. I am worried about inflation. I'm just more worried on growth. Inflation will come down. There will be time for the Fed to be very aggressive. But I do look at market price signals. And when I see the flattening of the yield curve, I see the dollar remain relatively strong. I look at equities and I see how cyclicals are trading. I look at retail, autos. Those things are down in, by significant double-digit amounts. There is inflation. It will get better. I'm more worried about the growth story. And also, I would much rather the Fed got out of the capital allocation business, got rid of the mortgages sooner, let mm. the balance sheet unwind, mm. let the yield curve steepen, and then tighten. Follow the forwards higher that way. Because the market's saying right now, if they do what they're telling us they're going to do on tightening, we're going to have a very weak economy by early next year. You know, right. Kenny, one market price indicator is commodities which are booming. Right. I mean, right. I, I look at the Bloomberg index. I look at the CRB indexes. Commodities are still booming. Right. I and mean, and as, certainly after last week, they're booming even more, right? After what happened, wheat, corn, you look at them all right across the board, gold, silver, palladium, they're all up. Oil, certainly all up. Uh, and I think that plays right into the, I'm on the other side of Joe's, of Joe's uh, yeah. argument. Uh, I actually think we're going to see inflation, and I actually think it's going to get hotter as we move into the summertime. I don't think we're going to see a, 
uh, a backing off or, a, or a, you know, a cooling off of inflation at all, at least not not until if we see it at all. I don't think it's coming until the very end of 2022. Well, you look at the numbers. So we got the um, the personal income report, which yep. so real consumer spending had a, had a good jump, one and a half percent real PCE that uh, corroborates with the retail sales number. But the PCE deflator was up six tenths. That thing's PCE deflator, which the Fed watches, is six point nine percent annually over the past right. three months. The core is six point two percent annually. Uh, those are pretty big numbers, gentlemen. They're pretty big numbers, and uh, coming down the pipe, the import prices were up eleven percent in January. The producer prices were up ten percent in January. I don't know, Joe. I I think well, you're... Here's, the thing yeah. is, the Fed can't really do anything on the demand side. The, what we should be focused on is the supply side. We're way too overly regulated. A big driver of inflation has been energy. It's obviously gotten worse given the situation in Europe. We I know I'm speaking, preaching to the choir about opening up Keystone, being energy independent, but also the regulatory state, which you mentioned many, many times, and you're exactly, you and Steve Forbes have been pounding this. These are all real important developments. And if mm-hmm. you want to get rid of inflation, the best way to do it, the rising tide does lift all boats, is to increase aggregate supply. That, that, that means getting more capital into the economy, getting more workers into the economy. And you do that by, by – we should be working on adjusting NEPA laws, and we should be getting – tax rates lower to incentivize people to come back into the workforce. We're doing all the wrong things. And even by the administration's own estimates, they don't have GDP growing more than 2% at any point over the next 5, 10 years. And that, to me, should be the focus. The Fed will do a good job killing demand, but they'll also kill the economy in the process. Well, I love the supply side. I think you're exactly right on we should be deregulating. They're not. And we should be making the Trump tax cuts permanent, and they want to and the Trump tax cuts. So you're right about that. Supply is lagging. Uh, I got to take a quick break. I'd like both of you, please stick around. We got much, much more to do because I want to know about the monetary inflation. I've got Ed Hyman and uh, Ed Yardeni and others um, talking about the rise in uh, M2, which is continuing way, way, way above trend. So that's a question. Anyway, we're talking to Joe Lavornia. And we're talking to Ken Polcari. I'm Larry Kudlow, and we'll be right back. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're talking stocks in the economy with Joe Lavornia, chief economist at Natixis Bank former chief economist at the White House National Economic Council, and Kenny Polcari, managing director at Case Capital Advisors and chief market strategist at Slatestone. Well, gentlemen, you know, there's sort of a conundrum here in a sense. Um, On the one hand, historically, high oil prices lead to recession. Now, I don't know if oil prices are high enough to get us to a recession. They sure jumped up a lot in the last quarter. But there's that. And then the other point of view, um, M2 growth continues at a rapid pace. So as a trend line going back 20, 25 years, 
uh, say you grow M2 at 6% trend growth, which is not inflationary, you're so far above that now. You're like $5 trillion above that. And some people are saying we have a huge monetary inflation. So let's tackle this stuff. Ken Polcari, are oil prices high enough to cause a recession, or does M2 play a role in this or what? Well, I think they both play a role, but I do think that oil prices are going to really start to impact um, uh, what happens in the economy. And, you know, fully suspect that oil is going to trade up through 100 and, you know, $125 a barrel. Uh, and I think that's going to, anything above 100, I think, is really going to start to impact what the economy is. M2 for sure. Uh, and we could talk about that all day long about how way above trend it is and the problems that that's causing. But I think it's a combination of both for sure. Yeah, I mean, Joe Livornia, you don't put much stock in M2. That's sort of a bad pun. Um, the, tell me about M2 and tell me about oil prices. I mean, they're like they're they're conflicting here. Yeah. The, um, so I, to just to expand on Kenny's point, uh, oil very well looks, sounds, seems like it might go higher given the potential, capa- at least in the short term, some of the capacity constraints. But we would need oil about 200, 220 to be akin to where we were back in 08 when West Texas got to 145 and certainly helped break the economy. So you're correct. Oil does tend to spike before recessions, but also because the Fed's tightening rates in response to those high oil prices. So there's probably some co-integration there. But oil is not yet at the point where you have to really worry about it per se. On the on the M2 side, I do think there's some use in it. I don't think there's a tremendous amount of use, mainly because money demand isn't stable. The velocity of money's falling. And also, while M2 historically worked, that was pretty much, Larry, prior to the late, not, late 80s, early 90s. What constitutes money has totally changed, and people should focus instead on liquidity. So even though I, I love Ed and Ed, um, they do great work, uh, you need to look at liquidity. And liquidity certainly is drying up. You see it in how markets are trading with bid offer spreads and treasuries. You're seeing it in equities. As I mentioned earlier, you're seeing it in credit spreads. So liquidity conditions are getting worse, and that's before the Fed's even tightened. And we may have a situation where as the yield curve continues to flatten, liquidity gets worse. M2 may actually go up even more because it's perceived as a store of value, people taking their money out of the market and they're putting it into you know, bank accounts that are insured. But generally speaking, most of the time, most of the time, I'd ignore M2. Uh, go ahead, Kenny. I would argue one point, um, uh, Joe, when you say that, you know, lack of liquidity may be in stocks. I don't think there's so much a lack of liquidity. I think it's much more anxiety and nervousness. And, and on the way down, buyers and the technology, the algos, they just pull back, leaving a void in prices, which then appears as if it's lack of liquidity. But all those buyers have just moved significantly lower testing out the, the level of angst to the sellers and look what happens. That's where we see these big swings down 800, down a thousand. And then it works the other way. Look what happened yesterday. As the, as people got more comfortable, the sell side algos recognize that they withdraw the, the, uh, the liquidity in line, they put offers higher up and therefore then the market whips the other way. Hmm. I don't necessarily think it's people leaving the market at all. I think it's the way. Oh, no, the not leaving Kenny. No, but, but, but will you highlight and you're exactly spot on. But what we've saw the last couple of days, in which Larry mentioned at the outset, the big swing in the market and the moves in the NASDAQ have been even bigger. Those have right. almost always happened in bear markets. Right. And that's a concern. So, Joe. I, I agree. Joe, you, th- you think we're in a bear market or entering a bear market in stocks? We, we very well could be entering a bear. If the Fed, Larry, moves as much as some of these 
large bold bright, bulge bracket banks are predicting, some of which have never been right on their forecast, <laughs> then yes, we'll be in a bear market. Ken Paul Carey, 10 seconds. You think we're in a bear market? I, I think there's certainly parts of the market. I do think we are going to test the bear market in the S&P before this is over. All right. Thank you, gentlemen. Joe Lavornia, Ken Polcari, great stuff. I'm Kudlow. Money and Politics, up next with Liz Peek and Steve Moore. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. Great pleasure to be with you, as always. You can join us during the week, Monday through Friday, on Fox Business Network. The name of the show is Cudlow, 4 to 5 p.m. And one of the stars, actually two of the stars, we got one, Liz Peake, Fox News contributor, Hill columnist, and Steve Moore of Freedom Works and the Committee to Unleash Prosperity will catch up. We, we don't know exactly where he is. Somewhere is out there. We'll put out an all-points bulletin. But we got Liz Peake, so that's all that really matters. You know, Liz, one of the themes of this whole Russian-Ukraine-Putin insanity is um, reducing or ending American energy independence didn't really work out so well, did it? You know, I mean, it's like, Vladimir Putin watches oil prices also. And it just seems like, and there's some history to this, when oil prices are down, we don't hear from him, but when oil prices are up, all of a sudden he gets adventurous in Georgia and Belarus and now Ukraine. I mean, is there a, there seems to be a linkage here. What you think? Well, yes, I think we have emboldened Putin uh, not only by not responding to earlier escapades in Georgia and Crimea, but now also by driving prices higher willfully. The thing is, what really makes you kind of crazy, Larry, is this is not an accident. It's not an accident that oil prices are so high and that Europe is so dependent on Russia for natural gas and also for oil. It's not an accident that we're importing half a million barrels a day of oil from Russia, for heaven's sakes, mm. and that we are no longer energy independent. Our production's down about a million barrels a day from 2019 levels, when in fact we were finally, after decades of thinking it would never happen again, we were finally energy independent. We have seen this, we've seen this play before, and it does not end well. Yeah, um, it does not end well probably won't end well for the economy either. Well, of course. I mean, you know, I forget the ratios and so forth now, but I mean, every penny increase uh, in the price of gasoline is a real tax on the American people. Mm. And, you know, you look at you look at something like the Consumer Sentiment Index that came out this week, uh, University of Michigan, lowest in a decade. And you have to think about over the past 10 years, this is the most discouraged Americans have been. And that reading was before the invasion of Ukraine. Uh, and, and why is that? I mean, after all, the stock market until very recently has been incredibly high. Consumers have been pretty well off in terms of net worth and in terms of savings. And yet they're more discouraged than they were even in the worst days of 2020 when COVID came out of nowhere and plunged our economy into recession uh, and why is that? Because they know they see prices ra- rising everywhere. Personal income has been down six months in a row. Mm. You know, people aren't so stupid, Larry. They get what's going on and they and they blame our policymakers. And if there's any doubt, uh, 
behind who's behind this absurd uh, quest for green energy, which is expensive and unreliable compared to fossil fuels. Look no further than John Kerry, who, for heaven's sakes, has literally made comments about the Ukraine war, not bemoaning loss of life, not talking about how horrible it is for Putin to be the aggressor here. Instead, I am not kidding. He's talking about the risk to climate change from all the military activity. I mean, really, that is really one of the worst things I've ever seen. Honestly, isn't it? Yes. No, you're right. I mean, it's staggering that he could say that. Well, look, you know, I always kind of thought he was the dumbest man in Washington. I don't know. Maybe he that's not too... a sharp knife. I would agree with <laughs> Maybe that. That's not the brightest bulb in the firmament. But then again, Liz, we're watching President Biden and his presser on Thursday tell us that sanctions were never meant to be a deterrent to invasion. Yeah. He actually said that. Now, of course, everyone, including our show, we're all playing it. You know, Kamala Harris is saying there's supposed to be a deterrent. Himself, Biden has said many times there's a deterrent. How does he I, – I want to talk about the sanctions in a minute, but how does he how, how does he get along? How does he possibly come out and say such a thing when his whole case, his whole case for not putting sanctions on earlier – was based on this deterrence theory and uh, diplomacy, which utterly failed. I mean, how can he say it? He He's just complete, utter reversal of his position. Well, I think he's embarrassed because obviously nothing we talked about, all this saber rattling by Joe Biden about how this was made swift and severe consequences. Mm. We're going to make Biden, a, I mean, Putin a pariah on the world stage. All of that shows such a enormously clueless idea about who Putin is, what he wants, what his ambitions are. He doesn't care a fig for how he looks on the world stage. He thinks he looks big. He thinks he looks powerful. And that's really all that matters to Putin. But as to the value of sanctions, I mean, a lot of people were saying, do it now, like three weeks ago. If you're so sure, and and they were apparently sure, and they turned out to be right, that Putin was gearing up to invade Ukraine, all the signals pointed in that direction. Why on earth would you wait until the invasion takes place to to employ sanctions? Because once he's there, he's not going to, what is he going to do? Turn around the tanks and say, oh, you're right. Oh, my gosh, uh, our bank is in trouble. I'm going to now head for the hills and leave Ukraine as it was. That was never going to happen. So the value of Sanctions after the fact, I think, is highly debatable. Mm. We have not seen, I don't think we've seen ever, Larry, correct me if I'm wrong. My guess is you have a better fix on this than I do, but I'm not sure we've ever really seen sanctions deter aggressive behavior. I don't think we saw it with Iran. We put pretty heavy sanctions on Iran, and they continue to fund their, uh, you know, apparatchiks and the Houthis and all these groups that, that carry out their their dirty work, I don't think that sanctions mean very much. I think the sanctions on Iran hurt the Iranian economy. Yeah. But I I think you're right. I don't know whether their terrorist activities were more or less after the sanctions, but I know um, the domestic economy was hurt very badly. The trouble is the Moas, you know, it's really, that place is a police state. I mean, the Moas are out there 
but it's actually the Red Guard that runs the place, and they don't really care about what happens to ordinary people. So, you know, that's a debatable point. I mean, look, I would have put the sanctions on the Russian banks right away. Uh, And right now, by the way, I would put sanctions on the Russian central bank, which Biden is avoiding doing. I mean, that's the the, putting sanctions on a central bank is the ultimate payment stop. The SWIFT system, as you probably know, you remember, Liz, going back, uh, the old Telex system. Remember that? Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Now, that was uh, information. It would tell you uh, thus and such was doing this to thus and such and putting this account here and so forth. But that wasn't a payment system. That was an information system. The SWIFT system is the grander version of Telex. What would really hurt Russia, um, I mean, really hurt Russia, is if we put sanctions on their central bank. I, I don't think Biden's going to do that. But if you want to, if you want to cut off his war financing and his cash flow, that's how you do it. But the whole point here, I don't know what lessons we're learning, Liz. But if you um, you have a problem, the, Putin lines up 150,000 or whatever troops. All of a sudden, they come out of the barracks. They come into the field right in the eastern border of Ukraine. This was what three, four months ago plus, and. It would seem to me we should, if we were going to sanction, we would have sanctioned right then and there. But we didn't. Yeah. So yeah. Putin went on his merry way. As you say, he doesn't care a fig about what the world thinks of him, at least not yet. And um, now the whole sanctions game is, is going to be too little too late. And it'll always be too little too late. I mean, he's there with this full-scale invasion. It's not going very well, according to General Keene and others. That's interesting. God, hope the Ukrainians can fight. But the sanctions, I mean... Here's what I guess I'm trying to say. I thought Biden looked terrible actually telling people sanctions were never meant as a deterrence. I mean, I think anybody yeah. who saw that would go, huh? What? Yeah, no. You know I, what I, I mean? It completely, it completely contradicted whatever what I consider to be sort of weak measures he had adopted uh, was completely contradicted by that. I mean, in effect, what he was saying was we had no deterrence. There was nothing in our arsenal that was meant to be a deterrent. Mm. So that's that's pretty that's pretty much a massive failure, it seems to me. Um, and you know, I don't I don't know how he walks that back, to be yeah. honest. And and frankly, what we've seen is the imposition of sanctions by the United States has been sort of begrudging, right? I mean, we saw that first rather weak bunch of sanctions, and then we didn't even sanctioned Putin himself until I believe the UK went, or the yeah. EU, excuse me, went first. Yeah. And so that kind of embarrassed Biden into doing it. I actually wonder, Larry, looking at what's been happening, whether the United States is really concerned about possible cyber attacks on our institutions, if we have intelligence that Russia is really planning uh, to get very much more aggressive with cyber attacks, because actually at least the Wall Street Journal is reporting that the, the volume of that it really has been less than expected. Right. Maybe, maybe Biden is anxious that, you know, if we unleash even more dramatic sanctions, and I don't think they've been very dramatic so far, like you're saying on the central bank, that there will be a more aggressive retaliation from Putin. I mean, I get it that Biden's trying to protect the American economy and so forth, but this does seem to me a serious line in the sand. If we don't uh, do everything we can to rein Putin in now. It will simply be a matter of two years, three years, and then he goes after 
Latvia, Lithuania, yep. you name it. Yep. And and this will never stop. And let by me, the way, we all said this when Crimea happened. Let right? me take a quick break. I want to talk about that because I think that's a very, very important point. And I also want to talk about this idea, Liz. Remember, um, we talked about how his polls, Biden's polls on um, personal character and honesty have collapsed because of all the falsehoods, he says. I, I think this deterrence business is another nail in that coffin, but I got to take a break. We'll come right back after the break. We are talking to Liz Peak, Fox News contributor, uh, Hill columnist. Uh, Steve Moore may or may not show up. We will see. I'm still Larry Kudlow. She's still Liz Peak, and we'll still be back in just a moment. Larry Kudlow. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're here with Liz Peake, Fox News contributor and Hill columnist. You know, Liz, talk about this. Um, Biden has lost so much personal credibility. People no longer regard him as an honest, as an honest person. That was one of his best things a year ago when he was elected. Now, We've talked about this, but remember, Build Back Better was paid for, he said. And everybody knew it wasn't. Every critic, every even his allies said it wasn't paid for. Then he said the Build Back Better thing uh, was going to reduce inflation, right? Five trillion more spending is going to cut inflation. And nobody could believe that. Then he went and said, um, you know, the Afghan withdrawal was a great success, which, of course, Every fool knew was completely untrue. And it started showing up in the polls where his own you know, confidence in him starts plunging and um, people um, st- no longer regarded him as honest. In fact, you know, they regard him as dishonest. So when he gets up there uh, Thursday and he says, well, you know, the sanctions were never meant to deter an invasion. This is another peg in that coffin. And I don't know why he continues to do it. But it will take its toll. It's going to really harm him. Yeah, I I think once you lose that sort of halo of being an honest, decent guy, it's pretty tough to get it back again. And Hmm. look, there have been an awful lot of issues uh, over the last couple of years. The whole Hunter Biden scandal. I mean, you know, the left has obviously tried to squash that pretty significantly. But you had real people coming out and saying, look, Joe Biden was totally complicit in uh, dealings that Joe, uh, that that Hunter Biden had in Ukraine and China. He knew about it. He'd met with the people. He was even, by some accounts, supposed to participate in them. And yet Joe Biden dismisses all of that with a sort of wave in the hand. He said, oh, that's been totally discredited. No, it really hasn't been. And I think, you know, I, I know that's uh, uh, those are stories or, or that's reporting that, that many, many Americans haven't even heard about, really, because it's not been covered by the press. But enough have that it kind of raises questions. Uh, and But to your point, I think it's things that in, in impact everyday life, like telling, you know, telling people not only that BBB was going to um, as you point out, that was covered, but it was going to bring inflation do- down. <laughs> Nobody but a nitwit thought that spending another three to five trillion dollars w- when the problem essentially has been puffing up this already hot economy with a lot of federal spending. No one could see that that was possible. And and, and as you say, the, the polls kind of reflect that. Um, uh, and that's very bad for him. And frankly, it's very bad for 
whoever succeeds him, I continue to think there's not a chance in a thousand that he'll run for president in 2024. Uh, presumably, he will be anointing somebody, and whoever is that person who t- who runs in 24, I think has a serious problem uh, tainted by his lack of credibility. And by the way, Larry, that also may be why so many Democrats are not wanting to to show up or are not wanting Joe Biden to campaign with them. I think they understand that those character issues, more than anything, really could cast a shadow on their own personal campaigns. They don't want anything to do with them. Yeah, well, I think what's going to happen is the idea that um, wherever you're running, if you're a Republican, whatever Democrats you're running against, you're just going to compare that Democrat to Biden. I mean, yeah, exactly. I've said this in uh, regarding Connecticut. Um, Comrade Blumenthal has got a problem because he's the Joe Biden of Connecticut. And you could just go down the list. You know, Maggie Hassan is the Joe Biden of New Hampshire, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, because what Biden's doing is devastating. It's all self-destruct stuff. And I, I don't. For the life of me, understand it. It's just now you have a pattern where he is just telling falsehoods uh, yeah. left and right on, you know, key issues like that press conference. I think a lot of people saw that press conference or if they didn't see it at the moment, they saw it later that night on the news because it's such a hot issue. And there he sure. goes again. There he goes. How can he say that? And then, of course, everybody contrasted that with Kamala Harris saying that the sanctions were going to deter an invasion. So it's just, I don't know. I mean, it's insanity. I'm In some sense, because I'm so much opposed to his policies, I welcome this insanity. But just yeah. historically, it's a curiosity why he's doing this. Well, look, when you start telling people that you're going to make the economy stronger, for example, uh, by switching over to renewable fuels, by 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 the very essence of those policies, you are lying to the American people because, in fact, it does not make our country stronger to be reliant on more expensive, less reliable fuels that, by the way, we're not even prepared to adopt. When you take, for example, when, when he ups the ante on uh, carbon emission-free lively lives in or you know making the country carbon free in a very short period of time much more aggressive uh goalposts than obama adopted and we're not even close to reaching obama's targets that is essentially a lie we're not going to do that Mm -hmm. and joe biden or somebody around him should know that those things are not possible Mm -hmm. and and i you know i think honestly people just aren't that stupid i mean americans kind of catch on after a while that, no, this isn't working. This is not good for our country. And again, I kind of go back to that consumer sentiment thing, Larry. How do you explain that? How mm. do you explain that people are more discouraged than they've been in a decade? Mm. It's pretty remarkable, really. Yeah, and I think um, I think your point that once you're tagged with the dishonesty stuff, you can't shake it. You really can't shake it. And, I mean, some people were saying that Biden's handling of the Ukraine-Putin thing with diplomacy, remember he had phone calls and virtual meetings and Europeans and G7 and Putin and so forth, that that would somehow erase Afghanistan. Now, <laughs> I never bought into that, but, 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 but some Democrats are making that case. 
but he's essentially bungled this one too. Yeah, I mean, I mean look, let's let's go back to the early days when he was begging Putin to have a bilateral meeting. The hmm. American president does not beg the head of a, a tin pot dictatorship mm. uh, to sit down and have a bilateral meeting. And then he, remember, he handed uh, Biden a list of targets in the United States that we would not oh, allow him yes. to, to attack via cyber attack. Mm. What is that? Right. It means all the rest of those targets, all the colleges and institutions and banks, those are okay? Mm. I mean, the, I, the very idea behind that is so offensive to me that you're sort of ring fencing a few institutions and saying this, you can't go after these. And by the way, or what? I mean, what is our big I, I don't I hope I really hope, Larry, that we are very aggressive on the cyber front, that we are attacking and counterattacking when need be. If Russia does these things, I have no confidence that that is true. I hope it is true. You know, I forgot about that list. That was a great list. Oh. I think we have to highlight that list. <laughs> Whatever. Do you have a copy of that list? We got to go, <laughs> no, go and I check, we can get check it. it off. I'm sure it's around someplace. That's right. If he cyber attacks us in the middle of Ukraine, which is not going well for Putin, he may really be losing his temper altogether. Um, he's not going to touch this and he's not going to touch that. Really? Are we yeah. sure about that? <laughs> That's a, I completely forgot about it. I'm still hung up on $5 trillion in spending is going to cut the inflation rate. I just oh, yeah. can't get I that mean, out of on. my mind. You just yeah, can't do I, it. Liz Peak, so I got to go. I really... Thank you for having me on, Larry. Always, always, always. Thanks ever so much. That was Liz Peak, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. Don't forget the Kudlow Show on Fox Business, 4 to 5, every day, Monday through Friday. And I'll be right back here on radio next weekend. Thanks, everybody.